touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're going to look at a a person who has a, a, a really important role. We're looking at Heisenberg. So he started off as Walter White, just a mild-mannered chemistry teacher, uh, but then eventually discovered that he was, Wait, had contracted jo- jo- cancer and that Jonathan, he was Jonathan, going to... What? N- n- Werner Heisenberg. Uh-oh. All right, well... um. Werner Heisenberg, right. Uh, uh, I'm just not sure about this topic. Uh, Heisenberg, right. Okay, wait, I think I have some notes on him too. Are you, this, he was born on December 5th, 1901? Yes, that one. Oh, okay, the, all right. The, the, the physicist. Yes, the, the famous physicist. theoretical physicist. All right, well, all right, maybe I won't get to geek out about breaking bad, but that's fine. We can talk about, uh, Werner Heisenberg. Uh, I like that your German pronunciation is better than the lady with the last name Vogelbaum. That's pretty. That's pretty great. Uh, FYI, you spreche Deutsch. <laughs> um, so, uh, born on December fifth, nineteen oh one, in Würzburg, uh, and uh, yeah, Heisenberg has played an incredibly important role in the the establishment. The, that's the foundations of what is quantum mechanics. Uh, right. If you've heard of something, uh, something called the uncertainty principle, that yeah. is, aka. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. That right. that is, he is the operative Heisenberg in this and we, we will uh, theoretical explain, equation. We will explain what that uncertainty principle is in certain terms, uh, but that'll be toward the the second half of the podcast. First, we wanted to kind of talk about who he was, sort of his background. Uh, his father was an expert in Middle and Modern Greek languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's uh, Doctor August Heisenberg. Uh, his mother was um, Annie hmm, Winkline. 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 Was it a W? Yes. There's no W sound in German. It's V. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Vs are Fs and, and Ws are Vs. That's easy to remember. Simple. All right, yeah. So, uh, yeah, he... he um, uh, it's funny because I, I understand that his his own background in Greek, his father was an expert in Greek, his own background in Greek meant that when they got to the point where physicists were starting to name uh, theoretical and Some hypothetical of these particles. Some atomic particles. Yeah, yeah. That he would correct people's use of Greek, saying things like, uh, uh, you cannot spell it this way because that's not how it would be actually spelled if such a thing existed in the Greek language. Ah. So, uh, so he was, uh, um, you know, helping us stay on the rails as far as the use of Greek. Right. Uh, while he was growing up when he was 12, that is when Niels Bohr presented his general theory of, of quantum existence. Yeah. So Bohr, uh, would, be incredibly important during uh, Heisenberg's education, but Niels Bohr also known for making the Bohr model of the atom. So that was the model of the atom that suggested that you had a a central nucleus and then electrons that were orbiting that nucleus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, anyone who's taken any, any class in, in chemistry or physics has seen the Bohr model. It's still one of those things that um, usually is it's part of the history of the the development of, of, of particle physics and quantum mechanics. Right. We we know now that it's a little bit um simplified. Yeah. In fact, Heisenberg would go on would to be the one that. who right exactly right. Uh, he was while he was in high school, there was a a major event that played out across the entire world and particularly in Europe. Uh, World War One. Yeah, World War One happened between 1914 and 1918. Some of Heisenberg's uh, 
academic contemporaries, or not even contemporaries, some of his mentors had actually served in World War One oh. as various uh, officers in the military. Right, right. Um, Heisenberg himself had to leave school, leave high school, to go help harvest crops in Bavaria at the time. Right. And um, by, by the time he got back after the war, he was deeply involved in, in youth groups like the uh, New Boy Scouts that were trying to rebuild the um, science and artistic culture in Germany. Right. So keep in mind, like at this time in Germany, things are really tumultuous. I mean, G- World War One was already one of those events that that played upon certain sentiments in Germany. And after the war was concluded, that got even more messy because you had the rest of the world, uh, you know, trying to deal with this situation and make sure that it could not happen again. I mean, th- this was one of those wars that no one really expected would ever happen because the idea was that everyone would be building up their armies to a point that anyone would be crazy to attack anyone else. And as it turns out, humans are crazy, y'all. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, it was, it was one of those things where, where as a, in an attempt to prevent this from happening again, there were a lot of reparations demanded against Germany. This in turn ended up fueling a lot of resentment in Germany. And would eventually give uh, the the Nazi movement sort of the third the, right kind of a, a foothold. Yeah, exactly. It gave them that 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 place to build uh, some support because you had all these Germans who felt that uh, that their lives had been ruined as a result of the actions that followed World War One. Now that plays a big role in Heisenberg's life because. This is also a time when physicists are making incredible discoveries. We are learning more about the quantum world, that, that atomic scale world than ever before. The, the uh, instruments that were being made were becoming precise enough for us to look at things on a level that we never could have seen before. So there is a, a figurative explosion in physics at this time and a lot of and sometimes literal explosions but a, a lot of the uh, the physicists that were active at this time particularly in Germany were of Jewish descent now of course that would cause uh, play another important role once we talk about the rise of the Nazi movement and the entry into World War II uh, obviously that's going to to really shake things up but before we get to that point, we talk more a little bit about uh, Heisenberg's educational background. Right. Uh, once World War I had concluded, he attended the Maximilian School at Munich and then eventually the University of Munich. Uh, he originally went to study math, but according to reports, a professor wouldn't let him into an advanced seminar, and that's when he switched to physics. And just imagine what the world would be like without that. I mean, uh, quantum physics, for example, might have a very different approach uh, particularly when you start talking about people like Schrodinger, and we will, and maybe we'll even mention his cat. So uh, at, at, he, at the university, he studied physics with professors like uh, Arnold Johannes Wilhelm Sommerfeld, who was a theoretical physicist. Uh, he was a physicist who would stay on teaching even during World War II. So he stayed in Germany and continued to teach. Uh, he did get... Uh, a little upset that the well, more than a little upset that his departments were being completely well purged, devastated. Yeah. yeah, yeah, purged of anyone who had any sort of Jewish background, whether they self-identified as Jewish or if they had maybe an ancestor 
th- three generations back who was Jewish. Sure. Also, um, uh, according to some reports, the Nazis considered theor- theoretical physics as a field to be Jewish. Yes, yes, because and there therefore was, suspect. There were so many Jewish thinkers who were the leaders of theoretical physics that the Nazis looked down upon the entire discipline as being something that was impure and should be completely purged. And in fact, instead, they wanted to have Deutsche Physik. That's German physics as a study as opposed to theoretical physics. So that would also disrupt the advances that could have happened during that time. Another professor was Wilhelm Karl Werner Otto Fritz von Wien. You're just enjoying saying these names, aren't you? Wilhelm Wien is usually how we we say that. But yes, your the answer to that question is yes. I love I love saying German names. Uh, he was a physicist and he focused on black body radiation and electromagnetism uh, rather. And he passed away in 1928. So he died before World War II began. He died before the Nazis had really taken control of Germany. Mm -hmm. Um, There was uh, Alfred Pringsheim, who was a professor of mathematics and had Jewish roots. During the Nazi regime, he would see his entire fortune taken from him. Everything He had inherited a huge fortune. And everything he owned was taken by the Nazis. Uh, he was eventually forced to change his name to Alfred Israel Pringsheim because wow, of his Jewish ancestry. One wonderfully racist. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, no, the Nazis were not known for being subtle uh, with the the way that they treated uh, anyone of Jewish heritage. And then uh, a fourth professor was Arthur Rosenthal. Uh, who had a focus on geometry as well as dynamical systems, also had Jewish roots. He would be forced from his position in 1936 by the Nazis and would eventually immigrate to the United States in 1939 and taught at the University of Michigan, uh, which has come up a lot in our conversations recently because that's where Sid Meier went to. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, he taught at the University of Michigan, then eventually taught at the University of New Mexico, and then later at Purdue University. So these were the four uh, professors who really... Uh, kind of sparked Heisenberg's fascination with physics and mathematics and the Even subatomic founding world. In, in those subjects. Exactly. Right? So uh, Sommerfeld, Wien, uh, Pringsheim, and Rosenthal. Uh, then in 1922, Heisenberg went to Göttingen. Uh, Göttingen is a university of Göttingen. Uh, it's a, to study physics under some more famous physicists, including Max Born. Uh, whose focus was on quantum mechanics, uh, particularly in statistical interpretation of the wave function, which we will talk about again in a little bit, because Schrodinger was definitely a, a wave function guy. As it turns out, Heisenberg was different. He did not really look at the wave function of quantum physics. He was looking at something else, and I'll, I'll explain that when we get there, because that's fun for me. Um, <laughs> Born, Max Born was also the director of theoretical physics at the university, and was Jewish. So he immigrated to the United Kingdom when the Nazis came into power in Germany and continued to research uh, particle physics, well, well not qu- particle physics, quantum physics and theoretical physics, as well as teaching uh, in the UK. Uh, then you had James Franck, who was a physicist and studied atomic and subatomic collisions, particularly electrons colliding with atoms. And also was of Jewish heritage. So he would leave Germany in 1933 for the United States and would later participate in what was uh, known as the Manhattan Project. We could do a full episode on the Manhattan Project. That we was should, also in fascinating. Fact, yeah. yeah, it's a, a, an, an amazing story. 
Um, and here's another great story with James Franck. So he won the Nobel Prize in 1925 for physics. He left the gold medal, the, the Nobel Prize medal, back in Germany when he left to, to essentially flee to the United States. Uh, there was another physicist named George de Hevesy. I know I'm saying that name wrong, so I greatly apologize. But for once, we're talking about someone who's not German, so I can't say his name. Uh, but he, he, in order to protect this gold medal from being taken by the Nazis and melted down, he dissolved the metal in acid and then put the solution on a shelf. So it was a solution with dissolved gold on the shelf. World War II is over. He goes back. The solution is still on the shelf. He then precipitates that solution, precipitating the gold out of the acid, and back they use the gold to melt it back into the metal. And mint a new... And mint a new metal so that they can uh, give it uh, back to James Franck. So that, I thought, was a really cool story. Uh, then there's another professor he, he studied under was David Hilbert. He was a mathematician who focused on geometry and functional analysis who retired in 1930. So he lived to see the Nazis purge Germany of Jewish mathematicians and physicists and was later asked at a, a state dinner. Uh, he was actually asked a question about what was the state of mathematics after it had been, quote unquote, freed of Jewish influence. And his response was, there's no study of mathematics anymore. He was essentially saying that the actions of the Nazis had effectively destroyed ended, the yeah, entire ended, ended the wow. entire field because they had they had removed or uh, or had caused to flee all of the leading thinkers yeah. and instead had replaced I mean, including them including like Einstein so yeah. yeah they were turning mathematics and science into a political thing and by doing that they were saying that these other things that did not fit that political regime as invalid and that's not the way science works. It's huh. not the way mathematics works. It, but that's it, how it they were be, demanding it work. It can be a very effective means of controlling a population by controlling their education. Sure, but, but yeah, and also, thought, and but, it also ends up meaning that you you really you you just throw a huge monkey wrench into absolutely. into any kind of advancement in those fields. So before World War II, this is this is all happening before World War II when Heisenberg is studying under these different professors. So during these years, he has the ability to really pursue his interest in in theoretical physics and mathematics. So, uh, yeah, this was this was all in the in the nineteen twenties. Yeah. So, so, um, in, so it was before even the the Third Reich was coming into power at all. Right. Right. So the, these are in the years between World War One and the Nazis' rise to power. So during those years, that's when Heisenberg was studying. And while many of his professors would end up having to flee or would be removed from their jobs, at this time, none of that was necessarily evident that that was going to happen. So he spent his time really talking with some of the leading thinkers of the day when it comes to theoretical physics and mathematics. Right. Um, so in 1923, he earned his Ph.D. from the University of Munich and um, went to become an assistant to his old professor, Max Born, at the um, University of uh, Göttingen. And so... Uh, in 1924, he would go to the University of Copenhagen and begin work with uh, Niels Henrik David Bohr, who uh, was Danish, not German, but a Danish physicist. And, uh, and of course, he, he was really interested in atomic radiation and atomic structure. And we talked about the Bohr model of the atom earlier in the podcast. Um, so in 1926... Heisenberg would go to the University of Copenhagen for about a year and then leave. But in 1926, there was a, a, a position opening, opening up at the University of Copenhagen for a lecturer in theoretical physics. So Bohr 
recommended Heisenberg, thinking that Heisenberg was an up-and-coming leader in this space. And so Heisenberg became the lecturer in theoretical physics at the University of Copenhagen. Bohr himself would be at Copenhagen for quite some time until 1943, where he would eventually flee to Sweden to escape the Nazis. Uh, 1925, that's when Heisenberg publishes his theory of quantum mechanics. So he was of the ripe old age of 23 years old. 23 years old, and he is, uh, he is, he is presenting a, a completely, um, well, He's presenting his own his own perspective on what quantum mechanics actually is. As we'll see, that ends up getting kind of um, assimilated into a, a unified view by looking at some uh, some other theories that Heisenberg did not necessarily agree with at the time. Yep. Nope. Not so much at all. As it turns out, physicists, like any other type of human being, can occasionally get very married to specific ideas. And, and maybe a little bit snarky. Yeah, there's some there's some great quotes that we'll be reading. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it turns out that not everybody uh, agreed on the behavior of particles at that level because they were first of all there was no way to really directly observe them. Right. So it's all hypothetical, and it was mostly things like your equations are are not as uh, easy to understand as my equations. Therefore, my equations are better. That kind of thing. In fact, that really is one of the arguments. So in uh, 1927, at the age of 26, you know, he's he's definitely hitting that, that middle age there for physicists. 26 years old, he becomes the professor of theoretical physics at the University of Leipzig. This made him the youngest full professor in Germany at the time. Yeah. So he was certainly making a name for himself in the in the academic world. Uh, in 1929, he goes on a lecture tour of the United States and Japan and India. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in 1932, he receives the Nobel Prize in Physics for his discovery of the allotropic forms of hydrogen. Uh, it, it was is for from that paper that he had uh, published about quantum mechanics. Uh, out of that, one of the applications was this discovery. Right. So, uh, in case you're wondering, what the heck is an allotrope? It's a different structural modification of an element. So let's take carbon. Carbon's a great example. When you have a certain structure of carbon, it forms graphite. A different structure of carbon forms diamond. Two slightly different substances. Yeah, these these different you know, these different manifestations of the same element. I mean, it's it's the exact same element. It's just the way that it's been, uh, or, or the way that it arranges itself. Uh, determines its qualities. And graphite and diamond are like nine day. They're incredibly different. So that's what an allotrope is. It's these different manifestations of an element that have very different qualities. Uh, with the case of uh, hydrogen, we're talking about orthohydrogen and parahydrogen. Don't ask me what that actually means because I'm not a physicist or a chemist. So I am incapable of answering. Me neither. I'm I'm at a loss there. But I do know that in 1937, uh, Heisenberg married Elizabeth Schumacher, who he would go on to have seven children with over the course of their marriage. Wow. Now, this is also the uh, the time when we're starting to see the, the Nazis come into power and World War II is beginning. Uh, and this, is, this becomes a pretty muddy area of Heisenberg's life because uh, it's hard to know which historical records are the most accurate. Right. There's um there's a lot of contention within the historical community about um what exactly Heisenberg's personal views and um role and roles were yeah. in, in in all of this. 
he had become the target of uh, of uh, Johannes Stark. Johannes. Johannes. Yes. I'm yes. just Any, butchering all no, of these. No, it's fine. It's fine. I apologize. We, our English, our English pronunciation and German pronunciation are different. It's and, perfectly fine. And, and to be fair, the 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 Vogelbaum side of my family is is really more like Polish Russian. So, <laughs> so Johannes Stark was uh, also a physicist. But he was, and he was a physicist, in fact, who in his, uh, in, in the 20s had published a paper by Einstein. He had actually, um, uh, solicited Einstein to write a paper for the publication that he was editing. And it was a publication that would eventually lead Einstein to, uh, ruminate upon the general theory of relativity. It was sort of a, a kind of a precursor to his general theory, which meant that in a way, Johannes Stark was very much uh, part of what made Einstein a worldwide phenomenon. Wow. Now, the reason why I say that's really interesting, or perhaps you might even say ironic, is that Johannes Stark would align himself with the Nazi regime. He uh, wanted essentially to be the Fuhrer of physics, which is... that's I mean, that's exactly the way I saw it worded when I was reading the biography, which is kind of... Yep, kind yeah, of terrifying. Yep. Uh, but he he also aligned himself with the Deutsche Physik uh, movement, the the German physics movement, and he said that because Heisenberg continued to teach Einstein's theories in the classroom, and Einstein's theories, of course, were not part of this Deutsche Physik uh, uh, movement, that he was what what Stark would call a white Jew or an Aryan Jew, someone who is not Jewish by heritage, but is by association because he continues to teach these thoughts that Jewish uh, uh, mathematicians and physicists had, had come up with. originated, sure. Yeah, so that somehow that meant... That he was a he race was traitor. Fact, yes. So, um, so Stark was very much opposed to Heisenberg and didn't feel that Heisenberg should should have any sort of position of authority. Uh, that did not stop Heisenberg from having that position. He was uh, obviously very important to the university and was one of the few protected. Of course, part of it was that he did not actually have any Jewish ancestry that anyone could determine, so that kept him somewhat safe. Right, sure. Um, you know, there's part of the debate about Heisenberg is, is whether or not he, um, he stayed in order to... Uh, to help preserve Germany's scientific and cultural communities or whether he was actually working for the Nazi party. Right. Um, he, he was made the director of the, um, German atom bomb project and spent about five years working on that supposedly during which another portion of the debate is whether he was working towards a nuclear reactor or nuclear weapons. And mm. no one is really entirely sure. Supposedly he gave a report to Nazi official Albert Speer. Um, that as of 1941 or so, it would take three or four years for them to build a nuclear weapon. Hmm. And that that is part of why the Nazi party said, I'll forget this nuclear weapon thing. Let's go with nuclear reactors to help drive uh, submarines uh, or vehicles. Sure, yeah. sure. Um, and uh, so but but, you know, that's that's there, there's been other research Um for, for example, one, uh, Paul Lawrence Rose wrote an entire book called Heisenberg and the Nazi Atomic Bomb Project that stated that uh, Heisenberg wasn't being evasive to the Nazi party, that rather he was being truthful um, due to a basic misunderstanding of the way that nuclear fission worked. Mm. And that by the time he figured it out, it was when the war was already winding down and he started to hear about the atrocities that the Nazi party had committed and kind of reactively recreated this image of himself as uh, as having been anti-Nazi the entire right. time. 
and that's the thing is that it's it's impossible for us to say one way or the other because there are conflicting reports and and really it's you know it's just it's a it's a difficult thing again once again we take our 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 uh, podcasting hats off to our sister podcast stuff you missed in history class that deals with this kind of stuff all the time. Oh sure, and and especially uh, you know everything surrounding the Nazi Party is incredibly sticky. Um, you know so, some of my favorite. Favorite stories about that time are stuff like, uh, like, like, like Leni Riefenstahl, who was one of the, um, who, who was the propagandist or uh, a documentary filmmaker for the Nazi Party, and I mean, she she took tea with Hitler frequently and has claimed forever that she never knew about the atrocities that were going on, hmm. and so it's 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 one of those things like who do you believe? Yeah, yeah, and well, uh, yeah, you know, getting back into into the what Heisenberg was going through at this time, uh, so. There is there is an argument to be made that he was trying to preserve the scientific uh, uh, community in Germany as best he could because there were others who were also trying to do that. Um, Max Planck, for example, was also trying to um, to do that. Although uh, Planck had hoped that the the rise of the Nazis was just a temporary kind of kerfuffle and that it wasn't going to balloon into this incredible. Uh, conflict that would span the entire globe. Uh, he just had no, he had no concept of that actually happening. So he had uh, decided to stay and to try and keep uh, the the German departments of mathematics and physics as intact as possible. So it could be that that's the case. We honestly don't know. In 1941, Heisenberg becomes the professor of physics at the University of Berlin and the director of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Physics. And in 1945, Heisenberg is taken prisoner by American troops and is sent to England. Uh, he's freed in 1946 and returns to Germany and helps rebuild the Institute for Physics at Göttingen. And then uh, that eventually becomes the Max Planck Institute for Physics, which would eventually relocate. I, bl- uh, I believe uh, I believe Heisenberg personally renamed the Institute the Mon- Max Planck mm. Institute for Physics. And uh, he would continue to travel and give lectures about his work. Uh, in fact, doing so almost right up to when he died. He died in, on February 1st, 1976, after developing cancer. So he was very much active in the world of lectures and academia well after the end of World War II. Yeah. Um, towards the end of his life, he became interested in pl- plasma physics and uh, thermonuclear processes. So see, it's, uh, you know, it's certainly... One of those interesting timelines, and in a moment we're going to really dive into what his contributions were in the field of quantum mechanics and give a, a full explanation, or as, as full as we possibly can make it, of what the uncertainty principle is all about, as well as why it's important in technology. Because yes, this does have to do with tech. It's just going to take us a while to get there. But before we jump into that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, so now it's time to dive into quantum mechanics. I gotta tell you, I'm not really certain about this. Oh, I'm just gonna keep making that joke. Excellent. Until it's funny. <laughs> um, so yeah, he was uh, Heisenberg had worked in theoretical physics and quantum mechanics during the early early days of the discipline, and he was particularly interested in studying the radiation from an atom. But uh, here's the thing: uh, he was also interested in seeing what was actually observable. You know, to really look at the atom and see what you could actually see it. Cause we had all these hypothetical 
uh, uh, particles and these theoretical uh, particles, things that that should exist based upon the the math involved. Mm-hmm. But but, uh, but but the science at the time was based on on um, bombarding these these tiny 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 subatomic particles with um, with things like gamma radiation and then observing what we could observe. Right, and so he began to differentiate between what you could observe and what you could not. And then he started to notice things. He said that, you know, we can't really always assign a position in space to a specific electron at any given time. And and we can't follow electrons around their orbits. It's it's not like a planetary orbit that we can watch continuously. Right. It's more like there's an area that an electron could be in as opposed to we can specifically point out that this is where the electron is at any given moment or this is the direction it is traveling at any given moment. And this would start to plant the seed in his mind for the uncertainty principle. So first he said that, you know, Bohr's postulation that the, the, the orbits of electrons are around the nucleus was more or less correct. He couldn't actually be certain of what those orbits were because of the unobservable nature of these the electrons. Way electrons move. Yeah. Right. There's just no way to assign a figure to this. You can't say the electron is in uh, this particular quadrant around the nucleus. Um, and you couldn't talk about really the electron's velocity either. Velocity, by the way, is speed plus direction. Right. And so he started to say that instead of using um, uh, classic numbers, the kinds of numbers that we would use to describe uh, human scale physics, right. that, that we needed to use um, uh, matrices. Yeah. And a matrix is essentially an abstract mathematical structure. So, uh, this was almost like talking about probabilities. It's it's kind of fuzzy. It's not specific. It's not precise. And in fact, that was Heisenberg's argument, was that precision is something that you could strive for, but you were never, ever going to get. Uh, he kind of arrived at this gradually. So in 1926, he was involved in a uh, a bit of a spat, a debate, <laughs> if you will, the- about quantum theoretical mechanics. spat. Yeah, yeah, a theoretical spat. Actually, it was real spat about theory, uh, but, but it was on. Uh, so you had two sides to this debate. You had Heisenberg and his uh, his fellow physicists who thought of quantum mechanics in the term of these matrices, these this abstract mathematic uh, uh, way of describing the position or motion of an electron. Because, again, he was arguing that you could not define it in a way that was like it's at X, Y, and Z coordinates. You could not do that. So right. that's um, why he was using the matrix. And there was another set of scientists who were trying to describe subatomic particles as as waves, the yeah. way that we would electromagnetic radiation, um, right. like Erwin Schrodinger. Yeah, Schrodinger. Oh, Schrodinger. Good. Yeah, Schrodinger. he and his kitty cat. Names. Actually, Schrodinger and the cat story is kind of interesting. Just a little side note. So you've probably heard of Schrodinger's cat, where Schrodinger was... Uh, kind of giving a thought experiment kind of thing to explain how how this this other form, the matrix form of quantum mechanics, is a little weird. The idea that you have a cat inside a box, and inside that box you also have a little canister with poisonous gas in it, and there's some explosive that has a uh, that that will go off at some point. I, and I I am giving a a variation Very of the classic brief overview. Cat. Yeah, sure. So so within half an hour. There's a 50% chance that the explosive inside that canister has gone off and released the poisonous gas and little Killed kitty. Killed the cat. Yes, kitty is no more. Uh, one life down, eight to go. There's also a 50% chance that the, uh, that the explosion has not yet happened. 
And that kitty is fine, but possibly very bored inside this box. And so the, the thing is that because of, uh, this, this weird quantum effect, and keep in mind, this is really something that only happens at the quantum level. When you get up to the, the macro level that we see, this is not actually the case. But the idea is that the cat is both alive and dead at the same time. And superposition though, has both states in superposition. And it's only when you open up the box and observe the cat that one of those two possibilities becomes true. Becomes true. And the other one just becomes vanishes. Yeah. It, it goes away. And that uh, then you have either the live cat or the dead cat. So that the cat is said to be alive and dead at the same time until you observe it. And that's when reality snaps into place and you suddenly get one of the two uh, results. And it was kind of a way of saying, like, this is just, you know, kind of crazy. But it's turned (laughs) out to be one of those things we always refer to. Anyway, so Schrodinger's cat and Heisenberg's uncertainty principle both are trying to explain various weird things about the quantum level. There's another one that we can touch on also that gets confused with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which is the idea that by observing something, you actually affect the outcome. So in other words, when we're looking at subatomic particles, simply shining light onto them affects their movement because we're talking about photons impacting subatomic particles, which changes the pathway, which means just by taking an observation and a measurement, you have changed what has what was going to happen. So it makes it even more impossible to predict things based upon uh, the behaviors of stuff because just by observing it, you change what that outcome actually is. Now, that's not Heisenberg's uncertainty principle either, but it often gets confused. So we've got this debate. We've got the wave mechanics debate, and that's Schrodinger's side. And we've got the matrices debate, and that's Heisenberg's side. And um, the, the, the debate was not always civil. Uh, there was um, there, <laughs> there was a quote that Heisenberg made to another physicist, Wolfgang Ernst Pauli, which was, the more I think about the physical portion of Schrodinger's theory, the more repulsive I find it. What Schrodinger writes about the visualizability visualizability, boy, that's a hard word, of his theory is probably not quite right. In other words, it's crap. Sick burn. Yeah, that was a little, that was a little rough. So here's what the difference was between these two. Schrodinger's approach required less complicated math to explain the, uh, the relationship of a subatomic particle's movement and, 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 uh, its, its position around a nucleus. For and example, it, an electron around a nucleus is an example. But. And it furthermore explained some of the things that Heisenberg's theory couldn't really fully explain. Yeah, it, it sort of, it sort of pushed them under the rug in a way because Heisenberg's approach showed that there were these little quantum jumps. Quantum these, leaps, yeah, actually. Yes, if, yes, exactly. There was quantum leaps. When you cannot quite solve the problem or you solve the problem and then you have to leap into the next body and hopefully your next leap is the one that takes you home. Uh, no, in this case, the quantum jumps were the, the fact that you would see electrons behave in a weird way. Like suddenly an electron would behave as if it had a higher amount of energy than it normally would. And, uh, that was, you know, Heisenberg's approach showed these jumps. Well, with Schrodinger's approach, because we're talking about a continuous wave, a wave function, it smooths everything out. So you don't have these jagged, you know, jumps. You have uh, just a smooth transition. Um, so the Schrodinger's argument was that 
hey, you know, I've looked at the way you are calculating this and I look at the way I'm calculating this and it turns out the outcomes are the same. We're getting the same results, but mine requires less complicated math and not all this mathematic abstraction that you are insisting upon. So therefore, I'm right and you're wrong. Or at least mine is more eloquent. So you've got these two parties of physicists getting a little catty, Schrodinger catty, perhaps. Oh, no. Um, there are 50% alive cats and 50% <laughs> dead cats. But then uh, it's interesting because you started getting into uh, other physicists getting into the game, uh, including Ernst Pasqual uh, Jordan, or Jordan, I suppose, who was a German physicist who would actually later join the Nazi party and become part of that movement. In fact, enlisted in the Luftwaffe. Wow. Um, and then you had uh, Paul Dirac, who was an English physicist, who both created unified equations that took the wave function approach and the matrices approach and combined them into what was called a transformation theory, which is the very basis of quantum mechanics. So, again, this is all theoretical. It's essentially trying physicists trying to figure out how to to apply the same sort of observation that they had in classical interpretation of physics on the macro scale to the quantum level, which is the incredibly tiny scale, the, the atomic or subatomic scale. At which the rules do not apply. Right. So, But the, the transformation theory ended up showing that there was a combination of both Schrodinger's approach and Heisenberg's approach, the sort of wave-particle duality that we know about uh, with quantum mechanics. That's kind of what was coming out of this discussion. So right. instead of them both saying, no, I'm right, no, I'm right, these guys were like, well, actually, you're both right. Technically, yeah, light is a particle and a wave. Yeah, so. and it gets, boy, boy, does it get even more crazy. Like, it seems magical to those of us who are used to classical physics on that macro scale. Because if things on the macro scale behaved the same way that things on the quantum scale behaved, it would be like we were living in Harry Potter world or something. Right, right. There, there would be a lot of, a lot of, you know, people suddenly jumping 50 feet to the left. Right, yeah. That, Cause you, you know, or you could never really be sure where someone was or how quickly they were moving. And, and emitting light when they did it. They'd be half dead and half alive until you looked at them. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things that would be pretty bizarre in our world. So Heisenberg studied Jordan and Dirac's papers and found that there were problems whenever he tried to measure the basic physical variables appearing in the equations. And by physical variables, I mean an electron's position and its momentum. So that led Heisenberg to create the famous principle of uncertainty, which he did in 1927. We usually call that Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So here's here's how it breaks down. The more precisely you determine the position of a subatomic particle, for example, an electron around a nucleus. So the more precisely you determine its position, the less precisely you can know about the momentum at that moment and vice versa. So if you more precisely determine the subatomic particle's momentum, the less precisely you can know its actual position. Right. Um, so specifically, he, he was saying that um, that. Running the calculation for this for this determination of of the position and the momentum um, necessarily contains errors, the product of which physically cannot be less than the quantum constant H, uh, Planck's constant, yep. which is the, the the smallest unit, the the quantum of action right. in an atom. Right. And so he, he, what he's saying here is that it doesn't matter how advanced your uh, measurement apparatus is. In fact, there was one point where Bohr. Uh, criticized Heisenberg's approach because he said that he was using essentially microscopes that were not precise enough and, in fact, had made an error. And then Heisenberg got really upset at Bohr, and the two of them had a falling out that lasted about a year. 
And then Heisenberg eventually wrote a paper and acknowledged, he, he said, you know, Bohr has criticized this because of such and such, and acknowledged that, in fact, there was an error, but said that ultimately that error was beside the point because it would not matter how precise that was. The fact remained that the more you would learn about one thing, the less you could know about the other. That's the uncertainty. Or complementarianism is another way that some people have said that there's this complementary relationship between the momentum and the position. So in case you want to know what momentum is, that's mass times velocity. Velocity is that speed and direction. Uh, so that's important to know. So on the human scale, this uncertainty is completely negligible. There's, you might as well just throw it out the window because on our scale, it just doesn't, it doesn't factor into it. It's such a tiny thing. But when you look at the smaller scales, this tiny, tiny thing becomes huge because you're looking at things on an incredibly small scale. And because we can't know but with precision both a subatomic's particle's uh, position and its momentum, we cannot really make predictions about what's going to happen in the future. And in fact, uh, this is where Heisenberg says causality becomes a problem, because if you cannot determine that subatomic particles position and momentum, you cannot actually know what's going to happen next. Right. So if you were to expand this out now, this is this is to the absurd. Sure. But if you were to expand this out, you could say that you cannot for certain know that by doing a certain action, a, a particular effect is going to follow. That's not really the case with classical physics again, because we're talking about the macro scale. But on the quantum scale, that's the case. We cannot really know what will happen from one moment to the next because we can't know enough about all the factors to make that determination. Which is which is kind of wonderful and kind of terrifying. Right. Simultaneously. Right. As then, though it's a cat in a box. Yep. And and this also ties into that observation problem, right? Because if we even if we observe the the phenomenon, then we're affecting we're it. We're changing the phenomenon, so, right? So we're making it even more impossible to determine what the effect is going to be. The cause and effect at the scale is something that becomes purely theoretical. Because as soon as you try and apply practical approaches to it, it all breaks down. And we promise this really does relate directly to technology. Yep, we're getting there. So uh- we then show that light can be interpreted as both wave functions and as a particle. That's with Bohr and Heisenberg together working. They they were able to kind of come to this conclusion. And uh, as soon as you de- decide how to observe a particular experiment, that interpretation becomes true and the other interpretation collapses. So in other words, if you're looking at light as a wave, you see it as a wave. If you look at light as a particle, you see it as a particle. And the other half of that interpretation goes away which is insane. They were talking about it, about how, how you observe the experiment. We disturb untouched nature and we become limited in learning about nature as it really is. In other words, we have a very narrow uh, view into what reality is. And once we focus that view on something, we cannot know everything else that's outside of that view. So imagine that you have a telescope and you are using that telescope to look at something that's on the distant horizon, and you can see that. You can see the thing that's on the horizon, but everything else has faded away. It's like all of that's just gone. That's kind of what the the that's sort of an analogy as to what he was saying here, which is disturbing to think about in a way, but that's how reality works. So you gotta kinda deal with it. <laughs> um so Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and Schrodinger's wave functions become the basis of the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. And uh, the reason why we even did this podcast, besides the fact that I think someone actually asked us to. Yes. <laughs> and Lauren's going to look that up. But the, the reason why we're doing this is because Heisenberg's uncertainty principle 
plays into the way that we use electronics today because now we're working with electronics that have components that are on this tiny, tiny scale. Atomic level, right. Uh, or at least the nanoscale, which is one one factor up from atomic, but well, not the, far away. The flow of electrons is critical for modern sure, electronics. Absolutely. And while we're making these tiny transistors or transistor elements that are part of these integrated circuits, you know, the, the whole purpose of transistors is to guide the flow of electrons, to allow them to pass or to not allow them to pass. Uh, through a circuit. Well, if you make the gates really thin, then Heisenberg's uncertainty principle tells us that there is a kind of a, a zone in which you might find an electron. And because of the uncertainty about the electron's momentum or energy, sometimes that electron can jump up an energy level because of our uncertainty. We, we, you know, it, it, it just will pop up an energy level and then pop back down which means that it can be found in a slightly larger zone than you would necessarily expect based upon its actual energy level. Which can be problematic when when you've got these incredibly thin gates that yeah. are supposed to be keeping an el- electrons on one side. Right. That, that zone might extend beyond the far side of that gate. And if the zone extends beyond the far side of the gate, that means that it's possible for an electron to p- appear on the other side of the gate without having actually passed through that circuit. So which it's, means it's called that- electron tunneling. And since it's possible, it happens. Huh. Which which means that yeah, uh, in in unless we figure out ways of of getting around these you know these these fundamental quantum uh, phenomena that we you know there's a point where you cannot make the components any smaller because the electrons just won't play ball because mm-hmm. right, they're right. just going to go every yeah, which yeah. way. The, the the fundamental quantum traffic laws, as you put it in our yeah. notes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It means that that. Uh, you're you're going to get errors in your various chips because they will not be allowing the or or preventing the electrons from flowing the way they are supposed to because the electrons are just going to be able to tunnel right through uh, when the, when it, those uh those energy levels bump up uncertainly. It's bizarre. It's so weird to think about. Um, but engineers have found ways of working around that using different materials that uh, that that minimize this so that they can continue to make things smaller and smaller. But we will reach a point when that is just not going to be the way that chips will be designed anymore. Either we'll will plateau and we won't be able to make chips with smaller components, or we'll find a different means of using subatomic particles to process information and we'll move away from electron-based chips. Which is hard to consider. It's really weird to think about. But yeah, that's not that 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 is beyond my entire brain right now. Yeah, no, it, I'm actually starting to to feel a nosebleed coming on because I I'm an I'm an English literature major. All right, well let's let, let's bring this back to something to something a little bit more uh, peaceful and serene. I, okay. I have I have I have a quote from Heisenberg via via PBS. Um, he once said, "Natural science does not simply describe and explain nature. It's part of the interplay between nature and ourselves." It describes nature as exposed to our method of questioning. That's pretty cool. Which I thought was nice. I thought that that was a much uh, less nosebleedy way yeah. of saying that um, that we mess stuff up scientifically. Yeah. It also it also is less uh, nasty than his note to uh, or note about Schrodinger. Right. <laughs> so, um, oh, I found the name of the person who requested this via Facebook. Uh, this was from listener Peter. So Peter asked us about this, and I hope that we were able to answer your questions to uh, your satisfaction. It was certainly to the best of our ability, keeping in mind that neither of us are theoretical physicists. Not by a long shot. Or mathematicians, for that matter. 
fascinating subject. And there are a lot of books out there that are really, really good about uh, explaining Heisenberg's role and also the contributions of his contemporaries, everyone from Einstein to Somerville to uh, Schrodinger to, to all, all the, the great physicists of the 1920s and 30s who have really made modern technology possible through their discoveries. Right. You know, it's right. I mean, re- really the way that we control the flow of electricity and therefore um, have stuff that turns on and off. Um, yeah. Uh, would, know, so would not would not be possible. It's interesting because, you know, you had the practical discoveries. You had the engineers who made the practical discoveries and the scientists who were able to refine those discoveries through their own or refine those designs rather through their own discoveries. Uh, it's this this intricate uh, interplay. Yeah, you know, without without both sides, obviously, our lights wouldn't come on. So thank you to both. Um, anyway, that kind of wraps up this discussion. If you guys have any comments, if you have questions, if you want to suggest other topics for us to tackle in the future, I recommend you get in touch with us because uh, otherwise we won't know. We'll be completely uncertain about what it is you want. So make us certain. Write to us. Our address is at discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter. You can find our handle. It is techstuffhsw. At which you can also find our Tumblr. Oh, right. I keep forgetting about that. You've been tumbling for a while now, and I just failed to notice you falling over and over. Right. Tumblr. You can find us there, too. Check us out. Lauren's been doing a great job with that, guys. You need to, you need to take a look. And, uh, hey, we'll talk to you again really soon. I'm certain of it. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 